Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here, and I'm excited to welcome in our online family as well, because we have hundreds of people right now joining us online. So if you're here in person, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online family this morning? <laughs> so glad to have all of you guys worshiping with us today. Now, I don't know about you, but I have trouble sometimes remembering things. Just ask my wife, she'll tell you. Uh, the other day she asked me to take back a shirt that she had bought at Sam's Club, and I was like, yeah, sure, I can do that. It was Saturday, and I needed to get a few things at Sam's anyway. I needed to fill up my car with gas. It's like, sure, I can do that. So I went to Sam's, did all the shopping I needed to do. I mean, I filled up a cart full of stuff, and then I went and got gas, came home, and as I'm unloading all the stuff that I purchased at Sam's, there I saw the shirt that I was supposed to take back. I left it and went off and did all this other stuff and forgot the whole reason why I was supposed to go in the first place. I don't know if you ever do anything like that, but I feel bad sometimes because my memory isn't always the best. But I came across a video not too long ago that a late night talk show host put together. They did some man on the street interviews and they interviewed some dads to see how well they knew their kids. And honestly, this video made me feel better about myself. Take a look. What is your daughter's favorite subject in school? Social study. Is that true? No. What grade is your daughter going into? Ninth grade. What's the name of your daughter's school? Uh, Ash Creek Elementary School? No. River Creek? No. Something Creek? No. What color are your daughter's eyes? Brown. All right, let's look. That is incorrect. They're blue. I have a brown-eyed daughter, though. What is your daughter's birthday? Uh, May 17th. Oh, no, it's the 14th, and I don't know what year. Can you name your daughter's teacher? Mrs. Jones. Nope. Mrs. Moore. Is not Moore? Nope. That was my elementary school teacher. <laughs> Can you name their teachers? Of course I cannot. What are your daughter's birthdays? Ah, uh, why do you do this to me? What about her? I give up. Any guesses? Yesterday. Oh, yeah, yesterday. <laughs> Horrible. Her birthday was yesterday. Just you forgot yesterday. it. I'm not sure if they even knew their daughter's names, you know, kids' names, but it's pretty bad. I don't know about those dads, but I do know one thing. I know that you have a Heavenly Father who knows you, who knows you better than you know yourself. He knows every detail about your life. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He, he knows both the good and the bad. He knows the mistakes that you've made. He knows the successes you've had. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what no one else knows about you. You have a heavenly father who knows you. And here's the thing. No matter how you see yourself or how other people may see you, he loves you. And you, you matter to him. Probably the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16. We've heard it before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And when Jesus says that God loved the world, that includes you. That's the whole world. That's everyone, everywhere. For God so loved you, he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Again, when the Bible says everyone, it means everyone, you and me. No matter what you've done, 
or where you've been or what's been done to you, you have a heavenly Father who loves you. And he sent his son to this earth because he has great plans, great dreams for you. If you don't hear anything else that I say today, listen to this. You, yes, you matter to God. And sometimes I think we need that reminder because it's easy to forget. And that's why we started this series a few weeks ago called Big Dreams. And we're looking at the story of Nehemiah from the Old Testament. And somebody asked me, they're like, so we're going to wrap up the series today, right? I was like, no, we still got a few more weeks to go. There's a lot in Nehemiah. We're not done yet, but I think we need this series. It's extremely practical because Nehemiah was a guy who led a broken people to rebuild their broken culture by rebuilding the broken walls of a city. And if there's a word that could describe the culture that we're living in today, I think it would be the word broken. We live in a culture, a society that's very much broken. And I know that as I preach this morning to those of you who are here in person or maybe watching with us online, I know a lot of you today feel broken. I'm preaching to people that are experiencing brokenness in their homes, their families, and their marriages, their places of work. And even if you're not experiencing one of those areas of brokenness, you know we live in a culture that's broken. We live in a country that's broken. And what I think we need to be reminded of is no matter how broken we may feel, no matter how broken our lives may be, God isn't finished with us. God isn't finished with you. Because the story of Nehemiah reminds us there's no brokenness. Our God can't restore. Our God can't heal. And so we're looking at the story of Nehemiah, and basically in Nehemiah's day, the city of Jerusalem, which was the capital city of God's people, nicknamed the city of God, it is in ruins. It's been destroyed. It was destroyed about 140 years before we even meet Nehemiah. And so for generations, the city of God, Jerusalem, has been nothing but rubble and debris. And this meant that Jerusalem was a disgrace. They were embarrassed. The other nations were laughing at them because the state of their city. But it wasn't just that the city was broken. The people, they were morally and spiritually broken as well. And they had just settled for this brokenness as as normal because this had been going on for years and years and years. And don't we have the tendency to do the same thing? I mean, we can live with a problem so long that we stop seeing it as a problem anymore. We can live with a problem so long that we don't see it has really a problem. It's just normal, just how life is. And that's the state of the people in Nehemiah's day. Their society, their culture, their city has been broken for generations, and they just kind of accepted it as normal. But Nehemiah knew that God had bigger dreams, bigger plans for his people. Nehemiah knew that God had bigger dreams, bigger plans for the city of Jerusalem. And I believe the same is true for us. And so, Nehemiah gets permission from the king of Persia to go to Jerusalem. He wasn't from there. He had never lived there. We don't think he's ever been there. It's 800 miles away, but he travels to the city of Jerusalem in order to let the people know God has bigger plans for you. And when he gets there, he kind of investigates the city. He goes around. He investigates the state of the city. He wants to see if it's really as bad as what he's heard. And sure enough, it is. When without drawing attention to himself, he inspects everything. And then after a few days of inspection, he goes before the people who are living in Jerusalem in order to make a speech to pump them up, to fire them up, to get them to buy into God's vision for their lives and for their city. And listen to what Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 2.17. Then I said to them, 
You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. He's honest with them, and its gates have been burned with fire. But listen to what he goes on to say. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. In other words, it doesn't have to stay like this, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Now, I want you to notice one phrase that Nehemiah says. He says, going to the next slide, you see the trouble we are in. We. Now, when Nehemiah says we, he means we. Now, this isn't his city. Like I said, he's not from here. As far as we know, he's never been there before. But when he says we, he means we because when God makes it your city, it's your city. When something is important to God, if you love him, then it's important to you as well. And when Nehemiah says we, he means we because he's all in. He's bought in. He's going to do whatever God wants him to do because the task of restoring Jerusalem is important to God, and therefore it's important to him. It may not have been his city, but when God makes it your city, it's your city. And I get that. I understand that. It hit me a few weeks ago on the first Sunday in January. I have now been here at First Church for three years. And that's crazy for me to think about because in some ways I feel like I've been here forever. In other ways I feel like I just started yesterday. I still feel like the new guy. But I've been here now for three years. And when my family moved to Owasso three years ago, we knew that God was in it. We didn't question that. But I had no idea at that point in my life how much I would fall in love with this church with our mission, with this city, with this area, and the work that we are doing. I had no idea. And yes, I am always going to cheer for Kentucky sports. I am. I'm sorry. I, I'm just going to apologize. I'm not going to apologize. It's just the way it is. Go Cats. But even though I'm going to cheer for Kentucky sports, this is my home. This is my city. I believe that this is exactly where God wants my family to be, and I am sold out. I am all in when it comes to the mission of First Church. And I pray that you are as well. Nehemiah, he's all in. And he wants to let the people of Jerusalem know that God's hand is on this mission. God's hand is upon them. If they will just focus on him as their king. Listen to what he says in Nehemiah chapter 2. He goes on to say, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. See, Nehemiah says, God is in this. God is doing this. God is the one who's in control. He's the one that is leading me, and he wants to lead you as well. So Nehemiah, he fires the people up, and he says, the only reason why I'm able to be here right now, the only reason why all this opportunity has come open right now is because God's hand is upon this mission. God's hand has been upon me, and now it is upon us. And as I look back at everything that has happened in the life of First Church over the past year or so, the only reason why we are in the state we're in right now is because God's hand has been on us. His gracious hand has been on us. In fact, today we are publishing our year in review stats for 2020. And you can go online, you can go to our church app, and you can look up those stats. Normally we print them off, but with COVID we're not passing things out. So you can go online or you can go to our app. We're going to send out an email this week, a follow-up email with those stats. But as you glance through all those numbers... I think you'll be blown away by what God has done. During 2020, during the midst of a global pandemic, we have reached more people in that year than probably any other single year alone with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ. 
We continue to be able to support all of our missionaries around the globe. And it's not just that we support our missionaries. We were able to expand some of our support. We were able to reach people and serve people throughout the 918, throughout Northeast Oklahoma in ways like we never thought possible. I mean, you will read through a list of all these different service opportunities that we had to reach people within our local community, within our area. Not only that, our kids' ministries and our student ministries are growing and prospering. We've had dozens of people baptized over the past year. We've had dozens of dozens of people come to our church for the first time. We've had people who join small groups. We've had new groups be formed. I mean, God has been working in this place. And what's even, what's even more amazing to me is that during a year when so many churches, so many of my buddies and friends across the country in large churches were cutting their budgets because the money just wasn't there, not only did we meet budgets in 2020, you guys actually gave more than what we budgeted. How awesome is that? And that only happened because the gracious hand of God has been upon us. We give him all the credit, all the glory. But here's the thing. God hasn't blessed us in that way for us to now sit on our hands. He has positioned us so that now we can do something with what he's given us over the past year. And that's what Nehemiah is trying to tell the people. Hey, God's been with me through this whole process, but now we got to do something with this opportunity, this open door that God is giving, giving us. Because here's the thing. It's one thing. It's one thing to recognize the need, but it's another thing to act on it. See, it's one thing to recognize that the walls of Jerusalem need to be rebuilt. It's another thing to actually get involved with the rebuilding process, with the construction process. And the people in Nehemiah's day... They're all in as well, and they shout out, let us start rebuilding, and that's exactly what happened. So chapter 2 of Nehemiah ends with everybody pumped up, everybody excited. They're fired up. They're ready to build the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, we end chapter 2 on a high note, and then we get to Nehemiah chapter 3. <laughs> Have you been reading ahead? You're allowed to read ahead if you want to. It's okay. If you've been reading ahead, you probably were thinking we were going to skip chapter 3. I have heard sermon series on the book of Nehemiah in the past. I've read books on Nehemiah. And a lot of guys, they skip over Nehemiah chapter 3. But I'm not a lot of guys. <laughs> See, the reason why they skip over Nehemiah chapter 3 is because it's just a bunch of names. And not just any names. They're really, really hard names to pronounce and say. They're a bunch of difficult names. It's a list of all the families, all the people who helped build the walls of Jerusalem. And so that's really cool and everything, but it's kind of boring if you don't know what you're reading. I mean, it's just a whole bunch of really, really hard names to say. But again, I think it's in there for a reason. I don't think we should just skip over that. I don't think God wastes words. In fact, in 2 Timothy, look at what the Bible says about Scripture. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. When it says all Scripture is useful, I think it means all Scripture, including Nehemiah chapter 3. So we're going to dive into Nehemiah chapter 3 today, and we're going to read some of these really, really, really hard names. And let me just let you know a little secret when it comes to reading Bible names. Okay, here it is. Are you ready? Here's the secret. Nobody really knows how to say them, okay? I'm just going to let you know that. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag right now. Nobody really knows how to pronounce them. 
You may not know this about me, but I have an earned doctorate in ministry. I do. I have a legit accredited accredited doctorate in ministry. And you know what I do when I come to certain Bible names? I Google them, and I look them up, and I listen to how other scholars pronounce them. And here's the thing. When you go and look them up, you will find 15 different scholars pronouncing those names 15 different ways, okay? Nobody really knows. So if you get into a small group Bible study, and you've got a bunch of hard Bible names, and you're called upon to read... Just read them confidently and just go through them. Be consistent in how you pronounce them, and no one will know the difference, I promise. And there will probably be some people sitting there saying, oh, that's how you say that. So just read it, okay? Just go with it. I don't think it honestly really matters. And so I'm going to show you how it's done, okay? So here we go, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Eliashib... The high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Henanel. Okay, next one. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them the fish gate, was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshalom, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshizabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, looks like banana, but it's not. Bana also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of well, let's go with Tuka. Okay, there we go, Tuka. That's how it's done, okay? That's how you do it right there. Isn't that fun? See, it's not really that hard, and nobody knows the difference. And if you think that I mispronounce it, you don't know. So anyway, we'll just keep going. And here's the thing. There are 32 verses just like those in Nehemiah chapter 3. 40 different names mentioned there, really hard names to say. Why are they in there? What's the point? Why would God use a whole chapter in the book of Nehemiah to just list these names? Well, names matter because people matter. God is letting us know that he pays attention to us. And these people who went to work in Jerusalem, some of them, yeah, they were nobles and rulers and priests, but others of them, They were common people like you and me, merchants and goldsmiths, servants, military men. There were even perfume makers listed in Nehemiah chapter 3. Just common people like you and me, and their names get recorded in Scripture because God wants us to know he's paying attention to all of us. When we go to work as he wants us to go to work, when we respond to him, when we trust in him, when we give our lives over to him in order to live out his big dreams for our lives, he notices us. We're not forgotten. Remember what I said earlier, you matter to God. You may not think that you're gifted or that you have a lot to offer or a lot of resources, but you matter to God, and God, right now in this very moment, is paying attention to you. Don't ever let anyone tell you otherwise. And right now, he's calling your name, and he wants you to step out of the brokenness you've been living in. 
But this chapter also teaches us something else. It teaches us that everyone is needed. Because here's the thing, the task of rebuilding Jerusalem's walls, that was a huge task. It was too big for one man to do. Nehemiah could not accomplish this on his own. He needed help. This wall, scholars believe, was about 2.5 miles long, and it's about 40 feet high. I mean, this is a huge wall, and so they needed all the help that they could possibly get, so Nehemiah calls upon his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to help him. And I'm not sure if you noticed this phrase in the five verses that we read earlier, but if you read through Nehemiah 3, you will see this phrase over and over again, next to him or next to them. You will see at least 20 different times in Nehemiah chapter 3. They were building next to him. They were repairing next to them, next to, next to, next to. Because this was an all-hands-on-deck moment. And the people of Jerusalem came together side by side. They divided up the wall in sections to be rebuilt. And together, as one, they worked in order to rebuild the city. And let me just ask you, who's next to you? Because God never intended us to do life alone. God wove within the fabric of our DNA the need for human connection. Life was never meant to be a solo sport. For that matter, our spiritual eyes were not something we were supposed to do on our own. God intends us to do life together. So who's next to you? Who's encouraging you? Who's challenging you? Who's holding you accountable? Who are you doing life with? Who are you surrounding yourself with who can help you become the man or woman that God wants you to be. Because a lot of times we just want to live life on our own and we get ourselves into some trouble. I don't know if you've ever been to Walmart or Target or wherever to buy one item. I've done that before. I eat a whole lot of lettuce. I'm not sure if you uh, know that or not, but I eat a whole lot of salad. In fact, it's pretty much the only thing I eat. But So I have to stop by and buy bags of lettuce all the time. And so I'll run into Walmart just to buy you know, lettuce. That's it. But then while I'm in there, I look around. I'm like, oh, yeah, Allison said we need some toilet paper. So I might want to grab that. And toilet paper at times is hard to come by. So make sure you get it while they got it, right? And I drink a lot of coffee. I'm out of creamer, so I need to grab that as well. Well, the kids, they really like mashed potatoes. So let me get some of those to make sure they've got it. I don't want to hear them crying. And they also like mac and cheese. So let me add that to the list as well. And Allison said we were out of Ziploc bags. So let's grab some of those here. And then uh, let's see, some cereal. Yeah, well, I'll make sure they have breakfast food. We're going to have a movie night on Friday. Need some popcorn, maybe even some green tea. And, well, let me get some mints too. I don't want to have bad breath. Just knock my water over. But I want to get all this stuff if I can. So then I'm going through Walmart trying to carry all this stuff. And I didn't grab a card. I didn't grab a basket because I was just going to get one thing. And now I've got all this stuff. And I... I do this often, and a few months ago, I remember I walked up to the self-checkout in Walmart. I had all this stuff. I was trying to balance and carry it all without dropping it, and I was getting ready to scan my first item, and I'm like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to set all this stuff down? I mean, I've got it, but if, I, if anything moves just too much, I'm going to drop it all. And this uh, younger guy, teenage guy, came up to me. He could tell that I was having trouble, and he's like, hey, can I help you out, man? And, you know, me being a guy, I'm like, no, I got this. I'm good. I got it. He's like, well, I can help you out. No, I got it. I'm fine. Thanks, so I appreciate it. So then I try to sit everything down, and when I did, this is what happened. 
dropped it all right there in front of everybody. Everybody stopped and looked at me. I was embarrassed. So I go down to pick it up. My face is probably red at this point, and that young guy who tried to help me comes back over. He's like, here, man, let me help you. And I was like, no, no, I got it. And he looked at me, and he, said, he goes, I don't think you do. And so then he starts, to, he starts to help me pick this stuff up like I'm, you know, helpless or something, you know. He started to help me pick this stuff up. And so I thanked him for helping me. I was like, thanks, man, I appreciate it. And he looked at me and goes, hey, no problem. Like you always say, love like Jesus. And I'm like, he goes to our church. I didn't even realize it. I'm like, ah. Don't you hate those moments? Anyway, okay, but, but I appreciate it. I really do. I appreciate it. But isn't that how we live sometimes? Like we're carrying around weight that we don't need to carry around. We're like, I got this. I got this. And God's like, no, no, no. Do life my way, and I'll take that weight from you. I'll put people in your life that can help remove that weight from your life. And we're like, no, I got it. I got it. I'm good. I'm good. And we don't. And we know we don't. But we try to act like we do. God wants us to do life together. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, two are better than one. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Guys, this is why we have the church. God established the church so that we could do life together with people who have like-minded faith, who will help us in our journey with Christ, help us journey through this life so that we could do life side by side with brothers and sisters in Christ. We were never supposed to do life on our own. And that's why here at First Church, we teach that if you want to live a satisfied life, a spiritually healthy life, it requires three key elements. We call it our discipleship triangle. If you become a member, or we use the language partner around here, if you become a partner with the ministry of First Church, this is what we expect of all of our church members, all of our partners. We want everybody to be personally pursuing Jesus. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus and you need to be pursuing him. But we also expect everybody to be growing together. Being part of a small group or a class or having Christian friends that you spend time with, having those people who hold you accountable, who you study with, who you pray with. We need to be growing together with other believers. And then we also expect for you to be unleashing love together, meaning we want our church to be serving. And if you're doing these three things, pursuing Jesus, growing together, and unleashing love, this is what it takes to live a healthy, balanced spiritual life. This is what it takes to live a satisfied life. This comes straight from Scripture. But if you're missing one, one of these angles, your life will get out of balance. And right now, some of you guys might be thinking, you know, I don't understand why I'm not satisfied. I don't understand why I've got so much anxiety. I don't understand why I'm so stressed out. I don't understand why things just don't feel right. I don't understand why I feel so empty. Maybe it's because you're missing one or more of these things. Maybe it's because you're missing other people in your life who you can do life with who will be right beside you as you serve Jesus and as you grow up in him, this is what it takes to grow spiritually. But you know, it's not just that we need others to grow spiritually and live a satisfied life. We also need others in order to carry out the work that God has entrusted us with. See, God's work requires teamwork. And we learned this from Nehemiah as well. It's not just that God wants us to grow. He also wants us to serve. 
In order to carry out the mission, the task that God has given us, we need one another. We need cooperation as the people of God. And I think that's why Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem were able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in just 52 days. I mean, that's a miraculous feat. I mean, in this day and age, we can't even get permits in 52 days to build stuff, you know. But they were able to rebuild the entire wall of the city in 52 days. And I think it's because they were unified. Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, he says, Any kingdom that is divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. But when the church is united, when the church is together, we are an unstoppable force. See, cooperation requires a willingness to place personal goals aside for the common goal of doing something great for God. And that's what we ask you to do when you become part of First Church. We want you to put aside, Jesus wants you to put aside your personal goals in order to live for the common goal that God is giving us. And so if you're attending our church and you come in with an agenda, hey, I want this to be done, I want this and I want this, I'm just going to let you know right now, I'm just going to be honest and transparent with you so you don't waste your time. This isn't the church for you. This is a church where we come together and we say, what does Jesus want for our lives? And then we live his will for our lives out. And that's how we make a difference. Because like I said earlier, we're not here to sit on our hands. We're here to change the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. We've looked at these verses before, but in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, meaning we are to preserve all that is good and right in this world. That's our responsibility as his people. You are the light of the world, meaning we are to go out and penetrate the darkness. We are to change the world by illuminating it, by showing it the path that it needs to take, by showing people the purpose that God has for their lives. And here's the thing. I have read that verse for years, but it wasn't until recently that something hit me. When you look at, when you look at this scripture in the original language, that word you is actually in the plural form. Now, we just translated you because in proper English today, we don't have a plural form of the word you, at least not in proper English. Now, if you're from Oklahoma or from Kentucky like me, we have a plural word for you. It's called y'all. You know what I'm talking about? Or you all if you're a little bit more proper than others, you know. But we have a plural form of the word you. It's y'all or you all. And we even have a plural form of y'all. It's all y'all. You know what I'm saying? You know, all y'all. You say it. You know you do. Okay. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, all y'all are the salt of the earth all y'all are the light of the world in other words it's not something that we just do as individuals we do it together as a family as a body as a unit as a kingdom the kingdom of God on earth we do it together and when we do it together the church is an unstoppable force see I love in this passage Nehemiah chapter 3 if you go back and reread it you'll notice that Nehemiah divides up the wall in sections and he gives people tasks to do that they're passionate about. Because everybody's different. Like the priests, for example, he assigned them to the job of rebuilding the sheep gate because priests offered sacrifices. They would sacrifice sheep. That's something that they were concerned about, passionate about. So he gave them that job. At other times, Nehemiah assigned people the task of building the part of the wall that was near their home, near their house. You know why? You're going to be more passionate about the area of wall that's near your house, right? 
See, everybody has different gifts and abilities and needs and desires and passions. And what God wants to do is use whatever he has gifted us with, whatever resources he has given us in order to carry out his will. We don't all have the same gifts and abilities, but we can all use whatever gifts and abilities God has given us in order to do the big tasks that he is giving us. So let me ask you, what's your passion? What are you passionate about? Because whatever you're passionate about, we can find a way for it to be used for the kingdom of God. And you might be thinking, well, Chad, this is a big church, you know. You guys don't need me. Yeah, we do. Everyone is needed. Even if you're watching right now from Michigan or Virginia or wherever, we can use you because the kingdom of God is bigger than just what happens here at North Garnett. God has a place for you in the ministry that is happening right now. So if you feel like you're not being used, if you want to be used, you can go on our app or website. There are tons of opportunities for you to serve. But if you want to talk to somebody directly, go to our hub outside in the foyer today if you're here in person. If you're online, reach out to somebody in our online hub or email our church office. We would love to find a way, no matter where you are right now, in order to serve the mission that God has given us here at First Church. Because we need you It's an all-hands-on-deck moment. Our culture needs the church to be at its best. So it's time for us to grab a shovel because God's got a kingdom he wants to build up and he wants to use us to build it up. Now, even though the majority of people jumped in this work in Nehemiah's day of rebuilding the wall, some did not. Look at what Nehemiah 3 lets us know. It goes on to say in verse 5 that some men from Tekoa repaired the next part of the wall but their nobles refused to do any work at all. Now, why did their nobles refuse to do any work? Probably because they were nobles. (laughs) They thought it was beneath them. They thought that was somebody else's job. They thought they were too good for that. Maybe they were threatened by Nehemiah's leadership. Maybe they just didn't like the color of the wall. I don't know. But whatever their reasoning was, they didn't jump in and help out. They refused to work because their hearts were wrong. And they're noted in Nehemiah chapter 3, but they're not noted for the work that they did. They're noted for not working. And Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, here's the thing. Living out God's big dreams requires sacrifice. And if you don't have a heart that's willing to sacrifice your own personal desires and wants and pride or whatever else in order to carry out God's work, then you're going to be like those who are noted in this chapter for not working. You're going to come and show up and watch everybody else, but you're not going to get to be part of the great work that God is doing to change our culture through his people. You know, there was one job that probably nobody wanted when it came to rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, and that was the job of rebuilding, restoring the dung gate. Now, the dung gate is exactly what it sounds like. This was the sewage gate, okay? This is where they took all their sewage. They disposed of all their sewage. And even though the walls and the gates had been torn down and burned for years, they still had an area where the dung gate was where they still disposed of all their sewage. So this was a stinky, dirty, disgusting area of town, okay? (laughs) Nobody wanted to rebuild the dung gate. And yet, Nehemiah tells us there was a guy who volunteered to do so. Look at what it says. The dung gate was repaired by Malkia, son of somebody from somewhere. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. I want you to notice this guy, Malkia. It says he was a ruler. 
So we read about him, we find out that he was the son of a noble family. He was probably well-educated, probably had some money. He was an important guy. He was a guy who had some influence. And yet he's the guy rebuilding the dung gate. Why? Because unlike other nobles in Jerusalem, he shared God's heart. And, was, and what was important to God was important to him. I love the fact that his name, Malkia, literally means in Hebrew, my king is the Lord. I've decided that if Alice and I have another son, we're going to name him Malkia. She doesn't know that, but she does now. Uh, but she might have veto power on that, I don't know. But I love that name, Malkia. My king is the Lord. See, the reason why Jerusalem was able to be rebuilt the walls in 52 days is because there were people like Malkia who went above and beyond, went the extra mile, because their king was the Lord. And here's the thing, no matter where you are right now, God wants to rebuild your life. He wants to rebuild your marriage. He wants to rebuild your family. He wants to rebuild that broken relationship. He wants to rebuild our community. He wants to rebuild our schools. He wants to rebuild our country. He wants to rebuild you. And he'll do it when he becomes your king. If we together have that heart, if we together are a people who are united around our God as king, we will find out there's no brokenness our God can't restore. I had the chance to go out and eat last night with one of the elders of our church. This elder and his wife invited our family to go out, and we were talking to them, and they said, uh, where do you guys want to eat? And we were just like, well, you guys are taking us out. You guys pick. We don't care. We'll go wherever. As long as they have a salad, you know, we'll be fine. So go wherever. Uh, we'll go wherever. And Alex spoke up, my seven-year-old, and he said, I want to go somewhere, but it's a little expensive. And I thought, oh, no, what is he going to say? You know, that moment you panic as a dad. And this elder looked at Alex and goes, elder of our church, he looked at Alex and he goes, what exactly is too expensive? Try me. Where do you want to go eat, buddy? And Alex looked at him and goes, Captain D's. <laughs> oh, yeah. Obviously, we don't get out much, but anyway, actually, we just tell him everything's too expensive, so he doesn't ask for anything, you know, but <laughs> it's good parenting right there, but anyway, and I remember last night, that elder and his wife, they just kind of chuckled, and I wonder if sometimes, if God looks at us and we have an attitude where we're saying, you know, my life is just too broken, my marriage is just too far gone. My relationship with this person is just too bad. I mean, our country is just too broken to ever be fixed. Are you hearing people say that right now? I'm hearing that. Just get on social media. And our God, who created the cosmos, who holds everything in his hands, just kind of chuckles and says, it's not too big for me. Make me your king. And you'll find out there's no brokenness I can't restore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today and this opportunity and privilege that we've had to 
open up your word and study it. And Father, we know that you don't waste words. Everything in your scripture is in there for a reason. And may we be encouraged by Nehemiah chapter 3. May we be reminded that we matter to you, that you're paying attention to us. Father, may we make you our king in every area of our lives because we want to live out the big dreams that you have in store for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.